Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So we've been investigating together um, the writing of the Apostle John, the first epistle, the first letter that he wrote, 1 John. And so today we're in chapter 4. And when I um, was reviewing what I had written, one of the times I was doing that, and I noticed the title I gave this, The Christian Way, uh, and I think that's a good title, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I had somehow, somewhere along the line, wrote the phrase, walk like a Christian. And so, some of you might hear that and, and not hear the word Christian and hear the word Egyptian, and I know we're hearing that. But um, that was an old song. Not that old. Uh, it, it was old to my kids, that's what it was. So. And we're going to see another one here that their era is going to really, um, uh, they're going to, when, when I read the verse to them, they're going to be singing it in their heads as I read it. But um, John is a, at this point, when he's writing, is an elderly pastor. Uh, he's probably definitely in his 80s, maybe uh, upper 80s, who we don't know for absolute sure. But he's an older guy. He is the last of the apostles who's still alive. Um, he's one, if you remember, that um, when he wrote the Gospel of John and he refers to himself, he, he reminds us that he's the one that Jesus loved. He had a very special relationship with Jesus, that discipleship, mentoring relationship, very close, um, very good friends. And I'm not exactly sure why, but I, I like the guy a lot too. He's my favorite of the apostles. And so, um, He's a great guy, he really is. And he's now spent all these years, you know, 55 years or more, um, serving in what we call the church. And I think it looked different back then than it does today, but um, he had a lot of experiences. And he's probably approaching the end of his line. He knows that sometime that's gonna happen. And uh, he probably lived another five to 10 years after this, but as he's, now writing, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, which, by the way, was one of the best churches of that day. I mean, they were really top-notch. And why not? They had all these great leaders prior to um, John coming there. And so uh, he's just kind of prepping them, prepping them for the day when there's going to be no more apostles, and this thing's gotta, you know, it's gotta take a life of its own. It's gotta keep going. And he's also warning them about what's going on around them. Uh, they've been infiltrated by half-hearted people who are really uh, have ulterior motives and trying to change and redirect the theology of the church. And so he gives a lot of uh, tests. And actually, um, as you read through First John, it's really hard to diagram, but it's sort of like spirals. It just keeps going and going round in circles, but there's tests that go on. So there's one here, again, that has happened before. He's brought it up before, and it's really the significant one. 
And it's the idea that the Christian walk, the way that we're to live, um, is to be people who show love one toward the other. So I'm going to read to you verses 7 through 10, and if you want to sing in your mind while I read verses 7 and 8, that's fine. Um, for those who don't know that, growing up in my kids' era, there was a uh, Christian series of great music and drama called Salty, and it was based on the Psalms. He was spelled P-S-A-L-T-Y, and um, this particular one has a very Latino beat. I mean, it's really, really cool. So, so if I accidentally break into it, you would understand. But it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So you probably caught in there, uh, in the middle of verse 8, toward the end of verse 8, that John says once, once again one of those phrases that just says, this is what God is all about. And the phrase in this case was when he said, God is love. Charles Ryrie, when writing about that, said that uh, love is his supreme quality. I don't know if that's true or not. I like to emphasize his holiness, but yeah, love is great. It really is. God, as to his own personal nature, is love. That's what he is. By the way, that means that God cannot act unlovingly. Can't do it. It's out of his nature. He cannot act in an unloving way because he is love. I'm assuming that you, like everybody else, has an occasion thought, that doesn't seem like a loving God would do that. It doesn't seem like that's the way it is. I'm going to just suggest that probably you and I don't know everything, and, uh, and God does. But God in his nature, in his very essence, is love. John also told us in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. And that really is, uh, although it's not the same word, but it really is a reference that's basically saying that God in his nature is holy as well. There's three times in Scripture that I can think of where uh, we are told by God that we are to be holy because He is holy. And uh, God is holy in His essence. And again, He cannot act in an unholy way. He can't do it. That's out of His nature. He also mentions uh, in the Gospel, John wrote in chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. You remember that when, he, uh, when Jesus encountered that woman at the well and, and they had the debate over, well, how are we supposed to worship God? And do we really have to be in a temple in Jerusalem? We live up here in Samaria and, and you guys don't accept us and we don't feel comfortable going to you. And Jesus said, you know what? God is spirit and you worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, you can worship God whenever, wherever you would like. So... Here's what Marvin Vincent says. Spirit and light 
are expressions of God's essential nature. That's what he is like. Love is the expression of his personality corresponding to his nature. Uh, that makes some sense to me. Uh, he is, by nature, he is spirit, he is light. Uh, we don't always see that. His love is a part of who he is. It's a part of his personality. This love that is God, that we are told to uh, imitate and dominic and to live out, is not natural. I'm going to suggest that, uh, you know, when babies are born, they're not born just unconditionally, sacrificially giving themselves to others. In fact, most babies, I understand, cry when they are born, probably because they're hungry and they're cold and they're wet or messy or whatever it is. Uh, it's usually a cry because of their own needs, not because they're looking at this compassionately at you. <clears throat> but yet, even though it's not natural for us to love, we're expected to do that. That's what Christ told us to do. That's what God has told us to do. And, uh, and in this, these verses, in a positive way, it says, if you love, you have God. That's just a simple statement. As you show love, it's an indicator that God is a part of who you are. And we're talking about that, that special, unique, giving kind of love. And that's because there's a kinship in the body of Christ. Um, we are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, we are part of, of God's family. We share a common nature because we share a common father. <clears throat> this practice of love proves that we know God and we are part with him. But on the negative side, if you don't love, then that's an indicator that you don't have God. It's usually easier to detect when it's in an extreme, isn't it? If someone is just totally bitter, totally hateful, um, it's really easy to say, wow, man, you know, there's nothing about them that makes me think that God is a part of their life. Verse 9 tells us a really good and deep truth about this love. And that is that God showed his love first among us. He did it first to us. He showed his love. And he did that among us and in us. And it seemed best by what he did in providing Jesus for us. Verse 11 tells us, verse 10, I'm sorry, tells us that uh, it, he gave an atoning sacrifice. I think the King James might say that he was a propitiation for, for our sins. It, it has to do with uh, he paid a price with his blood that covers, covers over the sins that you and I have committed. And God did that freely on our behalf. Uh, we didn't do anything that initiated that. There was nothing that you or I did that ignited in God's heart to say, I need to do this for him. What a great person you are. Uh, all of that came out of just his heart of love and his willingness to do that. And because of that, we can live through Jesus, his only son, his unique son. There is none other like his son. 
John 3.16 says that, doesn't it? In the King James it says it's only begotten, but it means only unique, is, is uh, one and only special son that Jesus is to the Father, and that was given to us as a gift. God's love was selfless, and God's love was self-giving. Bring this up for you too. Our good friend Ray Gingrich said, if fellowship between God and man should ever be established, if there's any way for that to happen between you and God, the principle of death would have to be removed and replaced by life. And that is exactly why Jesus came. That is exactly what Jesus did for us. He took away that principle of death and replaced it with the principle of life eternal for us. Because he is God, there was justice that had to be done. And God demanded a payment for sin. He always had. In the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people had a sacrificial system. They, they brought their animals. They uh, were contrite. They worshipped and they sacrificed. There was a sin payment through blood. But then 2,000 years ago, Jesus became that sin payment for all of us. And the Father, God the Father, when he saw what Jesus had done, was fully satisfied with that payment. It totally uh, satisfied the wrath of God. It paid for all the justice that needed to be paid for. All the injustice was paid for by Christ. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, that was an announcement of victory. That what he had done had come to, uh, to fulfill God's demands. Everything was done and it was complete and it was satisfying to God. It worked. It was what God demanded. And the results of that are continuous. They go on throughout all eternity. It's paid for. So we, we have this command that we're to love one another. Uh, in verses 11 through 16, I think it brings out a little bit more in telling us it's actually our duty. It's our responsibility. I'll read 11 through 16 for you. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him, and he is in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And when we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God uh, has for us. Because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. <clears throat> Loving one another is the outreach of God's love in us and through us. That's what he's doing. God has instilled that in us. He plants that in us through the Spirit of God. And we are to live that out for other people to see. Our model is, of course, Christ, who loved us 
and has given himself for other people. It may seem kind of strange that in verse 12, right in the middle of this whole discussion of love, love, and love, be seen by love, show your love, it demonstrates who you are. Right in the middle of that, it has the phrase, no one has ever seen God. And in some ways, it might feel like, well, that's out of place. What's that all about? But it's really not. It's not out of place in any sense. Because it's true, no one has ever really seen God. God is spirit, so physical eyes cannot see him. You might think, well, wait a minute, isn't there some cases in the Old Testament where they were what um, theologians call theophanies? Um, That means that God took on a human form to come and do certain things on earth. And that's true. Um, There were things like that. Uh, personally, I think that every one of those, and, and I haven't checked every single one of those, but I think personally every one of those are probably Christophanies, meaning that Christ was the one who came to represent God. And even some of those, they really didn't see God uh, and who he really is. For instance, with Moses, he got to look at the, the rear quarters of God and, and didn't get to see uh, the full nature of who he is. When Jesus came to earth uh, to be born and to incarnate and to live here among man, John chapter 1 tells us a whole lot about that. Remember in verse 1 it tells about how he was God, he was with God, and then in verse 14 it tells us that he became flesh and dwelt among men. But in verse 18 of John 1, John 1 18 tells us that uh, no one has ever seen God. Same phrase, same writer, uh, just a few years later, saying, uh, no one has ever seen God, but Christ the Son reveals him to us. I think scriptures indicate that one of the roles of Jesus as part of the Trinity, part of the deity, is to be the revealer of who God is. He's the one who we will know. He's the one who we will see. He's the one who we will be with throughout all of eternity. We don't see God with our physical eyes, but it is possible to see the essential nature of God. And we can see that in other people. We can see that as believers, full of the Holy Spirit, live what God wants them to live, and, and are doing the things that God wants them to do, and they're showing the love of Christ to other people, And there are moments when it's like, wow, that felt like I was in the presence of God. And it's partially because they were representing him very well. Christ is fully fully God, and he makes God known to us. But there's other ways that we know God, too. We can see God in creation. Uh, You know, the complexities, you show his wisdom, his creativity. Uh, We see God in his people. That's what Christ, this is what John is telling us to do. And we certainly find Christ in the scriptures. That's where we know God the best, is when we examine the scriptures. Well, here's telling us that um, the love that is God's nature, that is, it can become perfected or completed in us as believers as we exercise that in showing love and compassion and ministry and concern toward other people. That's what we are required and asked to do. It completes and matures within us. Our love for others 
makes God's love real and makes it visible to other people. You've probably done that on occasion. I hope you have. Many, some of you have done it many times where you've ministered on behalf of Christ and you've done things and, and you've been uh, with other people and just pouring out ministry and love on them. And it does give them a glimpse of who God is and what he does and what he has for them. In verse 13 and, and throughout even really this whole writing of John, he uses a phrase, depends on which version you have of the scriptures. Uh, some of it is often translated the word dwell, and some just might, like New International says, live in him. Uh, and it's repeated throughout this, uh, this thing, this writing. Um, and it's, it's that love that dwells in us indicates that God also is there with us. Um, and there's family similarities. There was a little debate, I read one of my commentaries, had a little bit of a debate, uh, being a sociologist, I love the question of what makes you what you are? Is it your heredity or is it your environment? I don't think we'll ever solve that question completely, but it is true that uh, family traits are passed on and there's a lot of things that just are similar from families. Um, I don't want to embarrass my family, but uh, there's a lot of things that if we're standing together, people will say, oh yeah, they're definitely, there's, there's the father, there's the mother, there's the kids, no doubt about that, you can tell. And, and all your families do the same thing. So there's a lot of heredity stuff that comes through the line and there's no denying, you know, yet they're connected. But there's also an environmental thing that happens. And, and there's a sense where I can be with my kids and some people will say, man, you guys, you know, you act alike, you, see, you know, do things, you think the same way. There's some of that kind of stuff too. Uh, or they can be with Anne and the same thing. But you cannot have two environmental milieu conditions that are different than Anne and I growing up. She lives on a farm in Burbank, Ohio, that nobody's ever heard of. I live in a city of a massive uh, city of, I always say, three million of my closest friends. And uh, there's a little bit of difference in the way I was raised in the 1960s uh, during a very turbulent time, and the way that she lived on peaceful. All, even all the cows are content on the farm there. So, um, kind of different. but. You know, the kids exhibit some of my traits, they exhibit, in a good way, some of her traits, uh, which is good news for them. There's family traits. And in the family of God, there are family traits that we all exhibit, uh, which has to do with God working in us, building hearts of compassion, lives of ministry, hearts of love, so that we can reflect who God is to the rest of the world. Sometimes I fear that if people don't have a good view of God, maybe it's because we're not doing a good job. Maybe we need to do a whole lot better in living for Him. Verses 14 and 15 talk about the deity of Christ. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, it reminds us that He came in the flesh. That yes, He is God, but He is also or was also human form and came that way. He is God and He is human. 
And that's a really important distinction that John is trying to make because of the ones that he's uh, cautioning these followers about. Those who live outside, they came in, and uh, not all of them had that view of Christ. The, uh, the confession of assurance that John wants to see is, can you acknowledge that Christ came in the flesh and lived 100% man and 100% God? That group we've talked about before, the Gnostics cannot do that. They don't believe that. And, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, they would look at Jesus as just a mere man and nothing more. He was nothing more than that. And John's saying, that's not legitimate. That's not what puts you in the body of Christ. That's not the worldview that we're looking at. And uh, I saw somebody do this. Maybe it won't make sense to you, but I thought it was fun. It talks about how the world that we live in is a field of infection. So it talks about germs and evil thinking and evil speaking and evil doing. Those are all germs that are in this world that are impacting us. And they are poisonous to the spiritual atmosphere that you and I have. Evil thinking, evil speaking, evil doing will just destroy our lives spiritually. Every time I see something like evil thinking, I think of my friend Bob Combs, who calls it uh, stinking thinking. And so, um, yeah, we just have to be careful with what we have in our minds and in our hearts and, and how we handle that, because we really are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors to a foreign world. And that's what an ambassador does. They go to a foreign place and they represent their homeland. And we are in a foreign environment representing Christ in heaven. So there's no room for the spirit of hate. There's no room for the spirit of fear. There's no room for the spirit of greed. There's no room for the spirit of jealousy. And there's no room for the spirit of self, selfishness. We need to be loving, giving people. In verse 16, uh, it does say God is love, but he, like John uses the pronouns we, re recognizing that his readers, those who he wanted to read this, uh, knew these spiritual truths. They understood. They knew what was right and what was wrong, and they believed it, and they became followers of Christ, and John is absolutely confident of that. So then in verse 17, he brings up uh, some interesting things. It says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. And then verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So on the positive side, uh, he's saying that there's a maturing love that gives us confidence. It gives us assurance that we have a relationship with God. That's what he sees in verse 17. Our love is not static. It grows, and it keeps going, and it keeps giving. And we dwell in love, and we live in love, and that proves that God dwells in us. And he talks about judgment there, 
don't panic. It's not the judgment of like the great white throne where people are going to be cast into the lake of fire. It's not that judgment. It's the judgment of when all of us believers stand before Christ at the Bema seat at the uh, judgment where uh, he will look at our, our works and what have been done. And, uh, and we're okay. We get in. And we can stand before Christ if we live that life that God has called us to live, and if we love one another, and we minister to people, and we have compassion and, and care about other people, then we can stand before Him confident, without shame or without fear. But then on the negative side, which is right there, it says um, no fear at all. In verse 18, there's no fear in love, but it's driven out uh, by love. That fear, fear is a strong emotion, isn't it? It's one, uh, I was reading one person that was writing about fear, and they said that it's a very selfish emotion. I never really thought of it as a selfish emotion, but I think what they were expressing was that it's selfish because it's all about self-preservation. And when you think about that, that's true. You're standing on top of the Empire State Building and the window burst out and you get scared, it's because you don't want to fall and die. <laughs> That's probably why. Or if you did something really unethical and in your work situation it gets found out and you get confronted, you have fear because you want to self-preserve, you want to get you want to keep your job, you want to keep your uh, good reputation, not be known in that way. The thing that overcomes fear is when we are fixed on Jesus. In Christ, there's no fear. We can be confident because we know that he is in control and that he is going to be the one who cares about us the most and is going to care for us more than any other one could ever do that. So love is probably the opposite of fear in that. Fear brings punishment. But just as truth is victorious in our lives, love is victorious over fear. And so uh, we do not need to have fear. Verses 19 through 21 talks about that love being tested. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Interesting. Um, a better rendering of that might say that let us love because God first loved us. That's our duty. God loved us first, and he's the one who has um, shown his love to us, and we should um, exercise love as well because of what he's done. We would have never known how to love if it weren't that God loved us first. And I'm talking about pure love. I'm not just talking about puppy dog and you know kindness kind of love. But the test is just simply love. Simply love people. I thought this was an interesting thing. One of the guys I was reading, it was one of the older commentaries, I think it was our friend Guy King, um, said that, and this has to do with 
if you if you're with God and you're abiding with God and you're dwelling with Him and you're into Him and His love gets into you, it's inevitable. It has to happen. So Guy King said it this way: If the sponge is in the water, the water's in the sponge. <laughs> it's like that's so simple. For me, it's true. Uh, and if if I'm in God and God is in me, then it's going to be there. There's, it's just inevitable. There's got to be that living out of love. And if we dwell in Christ, he'll dwell in us. And John says it's foolish to say I love God and hate other people, hate other brothers. That's just... I use the word foolish because I really don't like the word liar. We always taught our kids not to say that word. And, uh, but that's what John said. He said, man, you are living a lie if you think that you can slip through this life and tell everybody how, how impressive you are, and yet it's not real. It's not real. And by the way, I, you know, people, I'm sure people fool me all the time because I don't know them all that well. But, um, but you don't fool God. You just can't do that. So this morning I was listening to a preacher on, on radio, uh, and he's pretty good, uh, Juan Solomon. I just like him. I don't know why, but I like him. But he made a comment. He's always saying quirky little things. And he said that, um, just like that old phrase, you can fool some of the people, but you can never fool God. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not the exact phrase, but that's what he said. it. And the truth is, he was right. Love will always find its origin in God. And, and God's imprint is going to be in us, and it's going to be seen as love. When, when John called these people a liar, he's talking about those who claim to be in Christ, but in reality they weren't. Uh, there was nothing substantial there. And he's thinking about his modern day, 2,000 years ago, people that he termed as the Gnostics, the Today, there's some they claim to be Christian and are not. What they live and what they teach is totally against God's word. And yet they claim that they're loving. Um, they claim that they can um, do whatever they want, and yet they lead people astray. And my question would be, you know, the person who uh, is a pseudo-follower of Christ, the person who really... Um, make some claims, but there's no reality in their life. And yet, uh, today there's some like that, and they would, they would argue and say, oh, they're loving, and then Christians are harsh and judgmental and critical. And I would say, are you really loving when you're leading other people astray and toward eternal damnation? Is that really loving? I don't think so. Now, I don't want to be judgmental, and I don't want to be harsh with other people either. I want to be loving toward them. But I do want to love them in truth and keep that as a centerpiece in our lives because God is not just loving, but he's also holy. And we all stand before him. Love for God and hatred toward brothers is just not possible. That's self-contradictory. If you cannot love someone you see, how in the world can you love someone you cannot see? That's John's argument. Love is evidence of salvation. If you are born of God, you have his nature, you have his seed within you, the Holy Spirit is planted in you, 
And since God is love, his own are going to show his love. Children are going to be like their father, and they're going to live a life of love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the guidance of your word that tells us how to live. This is so simple. I don't mean to make it more complicated than it is, but a real test of who we are and how genuine we are is how we love you, how we love others. And so, God, we, uh, we want to just open our hearts to you and let you answer to us individually, each one, in the area of the test of love. How are we doing? How are we doing in growing in you and showing it toward others? You have given us so much. You loved us first. Uh, it's all based on you and who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you and praise you for that. And we ask that you would just move us closer to you. Keep us in, in the hollow of your hand and near to your heart so that we can live lives that please and honor Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.